Last Sunday we looked at the third letter of John, and it was a practical letter. And if that was a practical letter, then I would say these, this letter, and particularly these opening ver- verses, are critical. In some parts of the Bible are practical. Uh, all of it is uh, essential, but this is critical. And so I don't know where you find yourself this morning mentally, but uh, you need to get tuned in to these verses. And that may require some effort on your part not to be thinking about uh, later this afternoon or some list that you have going through your head. It may mean trying to uh, focus up front instead of uh, fidgeting. It might mean helping your child in some way to be more focused. But these are critical verses for us as Christians, and so we really want to tune in to exactly what uh, the Lord is telling us through the Apostle John in this letter, and specifically these opening four verses. What's at the core? What's at the, what's the bottom line? What's non-negotiable? What's the foundation? What, what's holding it all together? What's critical? What's essential? What's of first importance? Those are the kinds of questions you and I use when, when we're trying to get to the bottom of an issue or the bottom of something. When, you, when you're trying to get down to a place that say, well, can you tell me where there's no more shifting? Or I can just get down to the one certain thing. Or you're trying to get back to a place of origin to say, well, what, what started all of this? And what, what does everything grow out of? It reminded me of the article that I read in this week's newspaper about the $220 million upgrade to the Hubble telescope. Some of you probably have been watching those fascinating spacewalks. And it was just helpful for me, honestly, to know that an astronaut could have a difficult time with a bolt because that's really a big problem for me personally, and I was just happy that professionals had the same kinds of problems. And in the opening sentence, I love this sentence about the, this uh, upgrade, spacewalking astronauts completed repairs to the Hubble Space Telescope on Monday, leaving it more powerful than ever and able to peer even deeper into the cosmos almost back to the brink of creation. You see, there's some, some uh, embedded need to somehow try to get back to some beginning, some place of origin, some place that was which everything else grew out of. And you'll be happy and maybe relieved to know that it won't cost you $220 million this morning to find out what's at the core of Christianity because John delivers it for us for free here in these opening verses as well as the rest of the letter. He's, he's taking us back to the core. John, at the time he writes this, these letters, is an old man. He's in his 80s. The, the next generation of the church has already begun. Church leaders are coming forward that were not personally connected to Christ like John was. John was the last living disciple of Christ at the writing of this letter. And the, the church was rapidly growing. 
And as we'll discover as we read through this letter, it was beginning to slip off the foundation. Just one generation later. I mean, you'd think it would have been able to hold together just for 25 or 30 years, but we see just in this first generation after the disciples, it's slipping off its foundation. So like an elder statesman or an aging pastor, John is calling the church back to its origin or back to its beginning. He's using the letter like a, a powerful telescope for you to peer through and say, this is the one thing that we must magnify. This is the one thing, if we're going to have Christianity, that we must have straight. And that's the person of Jesus Christ. In the book, you can see in chapter 2, verse 22, you can see that deception is already creeping in. He says this, Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he made us, eternal life. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. So he's, he's like the retired pastor who's coming back to his congregation and saying, we don't want to slip off the foundation. We don't want to be led astray. We don't want to be deceived. And you'll just notice as the letter opens, it opens in a very unusual way. No identification of an author. No identification of an audience. Almost in every other letter you say, this is who's writing and this is who I'm writing it to. No, no greeting. It's like John is in, in a race just to get to the subject. I think this is proof positive that John isn't a southerner. I mean, when you're greeting someone as a southerner, you have to find out how their mom is, how the garden's growing, any update on your pet, anything like that. And then, only, and only then in the southern culture, can you get to the real subject. And so John's not a southerner because he's just going to jump right into the deep end. And he's going to say, the subject is so critical. The subject is so important. The subject is so foundational. We're going to have to just dispense at the time being for the periphery, for the greeting, for the welcome. We're just going to have to get back to the thing that if we don't have, we're going to slip off our foundation. And so he says right in the beginning, that which was from the beginning. Now, the phrase is intentional. It's used so you would think, gosh, I've heard this phrase before, in the beginning or from the beginning. And John's using it to draw your attention back first to the opening lines of his own letter, the Gospel of John, when he says this, in the beginning was the Word, and the, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And Jesus was with God in the beginning. And through Jesus, all things were made. And without Jesus, nothing was made that has been made. In Jesus is life. And of course, that's supposed to draw your attention back to Genesis 1. In the beginning, God. In the beginning, Jesus. And then everything else gets created and everything is sustained from that point. So John is signaling here in this letter for the reader that he's going to embark on a discussion about something that is as important as creation itself. 
It's not some afterthought. It's this is as important as understanding creation itself. And John is also helping us understand where his teaching is rooted. It's rooted in eternity. I'm going back to the beginning. John isn't telling people uh, about something new. It's not like an operating system on your computer where you say, well, you know, that worked okay for then, but now I need to, I need an upgrade. And what was happening in this church is there was sort of a need for an upgrade. I mean, we're holding on to parts of the operating system with Jesus, but we're, we've sort of grown away from that. We've grown up, we've evolved, we've matured, and now we need a new operating system, and we're going to leave some things out. And John's going back and saying, no, I'm going to give you information from the beginning. It's like Jeremiah calling his congregation back to the ancient past. And so you know if you're a student and somebody comes into a classroom, if you're a congregate and somebody comes into the pulpit, if they're going to tell you, hey, I've got something new here, then they're lying to you. John's saying, I'm going back to the beginning. I'm starting with the beginning. And that's an important thing for us to remember as we walk through the letter. And then in verse 2, John tells you what he's primarily concerned about. He's concerned about the word of life, the news about Jesus, the revelation of Christ. He uses this phrase a little later in the verse, the manifestation of eternal life. That's what the letter is about. The very center of the letter, the the core is about this news about Jesus Christ, the manifestation of God in the flesh. That's, that's what we have to have at the very center. If we lose that center, then we've lost everything. And, and for John, Jesus sort of stands like the sun in the universe, that, that when you have Jesus at the center, then everything can orbit around that in an appropriate way. But if you ever took the sun out, then you just have chaos. And so chaos is being introduced to the church, and it's because Jesus is not at the center. And John's calling us back to bring Jesus back to the center. Paul does it very similarly in Colossians 1. Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible, invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, All things were created by him and for him. Jesus is before all things. And in Jesus, all things hold together. So what holds everything together? Jesus holds everything together. What stands at the center for Christianity is not a way of life. What stands at the center of Christianity is life. A path doesn't stand at the center of Christianity. A person stands at the center of Christianity. Christianity isn't a system. Christianity is a Savior. And see, that's very different than the Buddhist philosophy. I mean, the the Buddhist has an eightfold path. And you can pretty much take the Buddha or Siddhartha out of that path, and as long as you're following that eightfold path, you're going to be okay. What's at the very center of the Buddhist system is 
doing these certain things, going down this certain path. And Christ comes in and says, no, what's at the center is me. I'm at the center. It's not a path. I am the path. It's not a way. I am the way. It's not about life. It's about me. I am life. He's standing right at the core of Christianity. He's the central figure. In 1940, a man named Jim Rayburn had a really insatiable passion for high school students to know Jesus. And he realized that a lot of the high school students in which he saw across the street from his church, they were never going to come to his church unless somebody from his church went to them. And so he decided one day to walk outside of his church, walk across the street, and walk into a high school in Texas in 1940. And you can see the incarnational picture of that. And so when he did that in 1940, he started a ministry that's now known as Young Life. And I can't quite remember the number on this, but when he started his first Young Life meeting and he had a club, he called it a club meeting, he gave it a number like 38. So he thought, so all the high school students thought, I guess there's 37 other clubs around, you know. They thought it was really neat. It was just one club. It was just this is the only one. But he was walking in to the lives of high school people. And this is one of his quotes. Jesus is not just what young life is all about. Jesus is all that young life is about. If you're new to Christ Community Church, if you're new to Christianity, Jesus is all we're about. He's at the center. He's holding everything together. And there are are outworkings to this, and there are decisions that have to be made, but we can take all that away, the very center, the very center of the column, the core, the beginning, the foundation, the essential, the the one thing that's non-negotiable is Jesus Christ. Now, one of the questions I have is, so why is Jesus so important? I mean, if you're a Christian and you're talking to your neighbor and you come up with, I go to church and it comes out that you're a Christian and, and they say, well, why is Jesus so important? Why is, why is he at the very center? What do you say? Well, I, I want to use Jesus' own words to walk us through what I think he would want us to know. And, of course, we could spend a, a whole series just trying to unpack this, but I just want to hear from Jesus himself this morning. Why he himself considers himself at the center of the column, at the core. And I think this will help you in your own relationship with the Lord. And certainly if you're here just thinking about Christianity, you're going to hear from the the core. And it will help you as you talk to your neighbors as well. In Luke chapter 18... There's a story about a a young man who comes to Jesus. And the Bible has already said in the Old Testament that God has set eternity in the hearts of men. That there's something like the the Hubble telescope. You're, You're always something in your heart about trying to get out beyond what you see. And that's a God designed part of our personality that God has set eternity in the hearts of men. And so this young man comes to Jesus and he asks, 
how do I get into eternity? How do I have eternal life? That's the question he asked Jesus. Good teacher, he comes to Jesus and says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Your neighbor asks you that question. What do you say? What, what must you do to inherit eternal life? If you ask just the average person, probably even the average person in churches, but certainly the average person on the street, how do you get into heaven? What would they say? you got to be a good person. I mean, that's going to come out in the first couple of phrases. And I think that's what this man is coming in. He's got a pretty good resume, as you read later in the story. He thinks he's basically holding it all together. And he comes to Jesus and he says, Now, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And I would immediately say, Well, you have to repent. You have to turn around. You have to place your faith in Christ. But that's not what Jesus says here. He wants to clarify something first for this man. Instead, Jesus turns to the man and says, no one is good except, what's he say? God alone. You see, this guy's in a different orbit. And when he comes to Jesus, Jesus is going to say, let's get in the right orbit before we begin the conversation. I can't get into your orbit. You've got to get into my orbit. And at the center of reality is that to get to heaven, you do have to be good. And the only person who qualifies, according to Jesus, is who? God. So if you're trying to get into heaven based on being good, what is he telling you? What is he telling me? You're not going to get in. If you're planning on making an application to get into heaven based on your good works, Jesus is saying, it's been rejected. You don't qualify as one of the people of the Trinity. Nobody's going to get in a mask on what they've done or what they haven't done. And he's trying to help this man orient himself around reality because this man thinks he's kept most of the law. And he's about ready to submit an application. And before he submits the application, Jesus sort of preempts it and says, hey, you know what? Nobody's good except for God alone. Now, now for a few of us, that just really needs to sink all the way down. You are not good enough to get into heaven. I don't care what you've done and what you think about yourself. And your grandmother isn't good enough. And your pastor isn't good enough. And your Sunday school teacher isn't good enough. You're not good enough. If you don't understand that starting out, then you're not going to look in the right direction. If you think you can do it, who are you going to look at? You! That's the whole problem. Since Genesis chapter 3, we've been looking at ourselves. And we've been trying to measure up. And Jesus thankfully comes in and says, quit looking at yourself. You are not 
disqualified, rejected. That's the first thing that Jesus wants us to understand. And so I'm going to immediately ask this question, if I'm this young man, God's planted eternity in my heart. Has he not, Jesus? Well, yes, as a matter of fact, he has. And that's what I'm asking about. And you're telling me I can't get in on my own performance. What should I do? What's the answer? Look where somebody else is going. If you know you can't get on on your performance, then you're going to have to rely on somebody else to get you there. Are you not? And if the man can begin to shift and say, okay, I guess I've got to look somewhere outside myself, then Jesus can say, welcome home, I'm it. So he's trying to orient us. He's trying to orient this man against something that's very prevalent in our culture, and that is that good people don't get into heaven because nobody qualifies on being good except for God. So if you're going to get into heaven, you better look for somebody who's perfect. You better be looking for God. And Jesus claims to be God. Mark chapter 2. You remember the story, the men are carrying the paralytic. They come to the house, it's full, can't get in, got to go upstairs. And because of the way the houses are built, you can sort of take out the thatched roof and you can lower the man in front of Jesus, which is exactly what his friends did. And then Jesus looks at the man and says, get up, walk. No, he doesn't. What does he say? Your sins are forgiven. That's the main problem this man has. And then he notices the Pharisees, the religious people in the crowd, they begin to sort of murmur amongst themselves. And this is what they say. Who can forgive sins but God alone? You see, Jesus is clearly saying, and everyone understands it in the room, that he's saying that he's God. Now, he may not be, but he understands that he's saying he's God, and even the enemies understand that he's saying he's God. Because he's forgiven this man's sin, and he says, okay, guys, which is harder to do? To say, I forgive your sins, or to help this man get up and walk away? And so that you know that I have this power to forgive sins, I have the authority to forgive sins, I'm going to help this guy get up and walk home. And so he does. He heals the man. The man picks up his bedroll, and he walks out. Now, which is harder? To heal a man physically or to forgive sins? It's a lot harder to forgive sins. Because just like when you have to forgive sin, you have to absorb a debt. You have to make a payment on behalf of somebody else. You have to be willing to take it upon yourself and not give it to somebody else. And that's exactly what Jesus does on the cross. John 19, he's hanging on the cross and he says, it is finished. It's an accounting term. It's been paid in full. Your sins, my sins have been paid in full. God came down in the flesh and he took on our sin and he paid it fully. We needed a perfect person who could also also had to be God in order to be perfect, and he took that upon himself. And when he died on the cross, he says, 
it is finished. And his receipt for that was coming out of the grave. See, I've conquered death. You can trust me. 1 John 2, 2. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Now, John Gale will talk about this when he gets to this, but he's the propitiation for our sins. In other words, we have sinned against a holy and almighty God, and what we deserve is his wrath and judgment. And it is coming down on us. And what we must have in order to survive is somebody who will divert that away from us and take it upon themselves. And that's what that means. Jesus Christ stood in and he diverted the wrath of God away from us and he absorbed it. He paid it down. He became sin who knew no sin for on our behalf. And so he is capable of standing in our place because he came in the flesh. He's like me. He's a human. And he's capable of absorbing the sins of the whole world because he's God. He's not just able to do it for one person, but because he's an eternal being, he's able to absorb the payment of that sin for everyone who ever lived. So that's why Jesus is important. There's nobody else like him in humanity. There's no other mediator between God and man. Nothing else needs to be done. There doesn't need to be an advancement on the gospel somehow. Like, hey, that was great 2,000 years ago, but we're growing up now. We need something different. That's not true. Now, the reason John desires to go back to the core or the person of Christ is because the person of Christ is always under attack whether you live in the 1st century or whether you live in the 21st century. So John is saying, hey, you understand the core now. You've gotten it just from these few passages. Jesus is at the center. He is life. He's holding all things together. And they've been slipping off. And so John lived in a time that uh, a serious heresy was attacking, beginning to attack the church. It's known as Gnosticism. And it really wasn't full-blown Gnosticism at John's death, but it just began to formulate, and it almost swallowed up the church. And so John has to, at the very beginning, sort of stand in the gap and call his people back to the foundation. And one element of the Gnostic worldview was that the material world was bad and the spiritual world was good. So anything physical, you and I or this earth, it's really an evil thing and then what's spiritual is good. And this worldview sort of ran down a lot of different trails, but one view was that Jesus was a man, and the Spirit of Christ landed on Jesus at his baptism. Jesus, a regular man, shows up, he gets baptized, and a spirit of the Spirit of Christ comes down onto Christ like a dove and comes onto this man, He lives uh, a few years. He has some really great teaching that you need to pay attention to. But before his crucifixion, the spirit goes back up into heaven because the divine couldn't actually be put to death. Does that make sense? So you've just got a man who has the spirit of Christ, and for these two or three years, his teaching is what you need to pay attention to. And do you see how you can slip? 
becomes critical now. Your knowledge about His teaching. Not your knowledge of Him. So many times in our culture, we have all kinds of religions who, who want to just take the, the Sermon on the Mount and say, if we just live this way. Well, the only way you can live that way is if you have the right person at the center. You can't just take the teaching and leave the person behind. And that's what's happening in that culture. It's happening right now. Can we just jettison Jesus and take his teaching and still call ourselves Christians? And what does John say? No, you cannot. You can call yourself something else, but you're not Christians anymore if you lose the core. And that the core is not Jesus' teachings. It's Jesus in the flesh. Which is why you have this in John 4, 2. 1 John 4, 2. By this you know the Spirit of God. How do, I, how do we know the Spirit of God? Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. You see, John's really doing something very basic. He's just circling the wagons around Jesus Christ as the core. The other thing that the Gnostic system did was it led people to being spiritual but not ethical. Because the spiritual world was good and the material world was either bad or didn't matter. So what you did with your body, what you did with your time, what you did in the material world just didn't matter that much. It just mattered what you believed. Now, does that sound familiar? That what you do with your physical body and what you do in this physical world just doesn't matter. What matters is what you believe. And you just don't want to be judged on your physical behavior. You want to be judged on what you believe. I mean, it happens to pastors. It's happened to presidents. It happens to priests. It happens to people in the parish. I want to do whatever I want to do, and I'm just going to say I believe this, and that's okay. I'm going to be okay with being that. We have this compartmentalizing of our lives. So we won't be surprised that John speaks against this. 1 John 2, 4. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commands, is a liar. Now, when you read scholars on this particular uh, verse in the Bible, they're not very confused about what John was trying to say. There's not a lot of, well, I don't know what he was trying to say here. He could have been saying a lot of different things. No, they all know. They're all saying, hey, if you think you can just believe something and it doesn't affect your life, what are you? You're a liar. You're living a lie. Finally, in verse 3, we see what's at stake. We're just beginning on this letter. John's coming in and he's trying to help us understand what the core is. The core is Christ and it's and it matters that he came in the flesh and it matters that your behavior matches up with your beliefs. And so he's going to finally in verse 3 tell us what's 
at stake. Fellowship with us, meaning other Christians, and with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. In in the course of your lifetime, you're going to share the stage with a lot of people. That's okay. I mean, politics are going to put people of different religions on the same stage. Social issues, you're going to have different people on the same stage. Your business, academics, the economy. There's, there's all kinds of times that the stage is going to be shared with a number of different beliefs because you're together, you really you are for something or you're against something. That's fine. But it's not fine when it comes to what you think about God. John is saying, I'm not going to share the stage with anyone. He's telling us, Jesus is saying, if you want to have fellowship with me, you've got to know Jesus. And when it comes to what you think about God, there's only one person on the stage. Jesus Christ is the only one on the stage. He's the only one who is God. You remember when Jesus took his disciples to Caesarea Philippi, this place full of idols, and Jesus sort of stands on the stage and says, guys, you've seen all the idols in the culture, and here I'm I'm, I'm lowering myself as God Almighty to stand on the stage, and I'm asking you this question, disciples, brothers and sisters, who do you say that I am? Who do you think I am? Am I just one on a stage? Or am I something unique? And Peter says, you're unique. You're the Christ. You are the Son of the living God. No one shares the stage with you when it comes to teaching and speaking about God Almighty. There is only one center. There is only one core. But we live in a very pluralistic culture in America. And we're just about ready to get swallowed up by it. I was talking to a friend about a graduation that she went to. And it was at a very predominantly predominant Catholic university. It wasn't Notre Dame. And they have an invocation. You, what you might expect. So at the Catholic University, somebody comes in, and before the whole thing begins, somebody's got to open up with a word of prayer. Two people come up, a nun and a Muslim. And they stand side by side at a pulpit about this side, and they read a prayer together. She reads a sentence, he reads a sentence, she reads a sentence, as if they're just pointing to the same person. You see, we're just about ready to get swallowed up. Some of you here are getting swallowed by it. Because even me saying it makes you uptight. That on the stage, when you're talking about God, there's only one figure. There are not a bunch of figures up here you can choose from. There's only one. And if you want to know God, you must know Jesus Christ. And if you do not know Jesus Christ, then guess what? You don't know God. 
And so, no, we're not all praying to the same big man upstairs. You see, what John's drawing us back to is something that's very basic, but it's very divisive, especially in our pluralistic culture. I mean, if I said this on a political stage, end of the career. But John wants us to understand, look, you may share the stage with a lot of different people for a lot of different causes. That's fine. But when you're coming up for the cause of Christ, no sharing the stage. Because there is only one truth, and that is Jesus Christ, that he has come. That glory be to God that he is able to take our sins, and we are then able to have a relationship with God. That's the best news anybody could have ever heard. That there's any way at all is wonderful. And Jesus is the way. See, what's at stake is your fellowship with each other, your fellowship with God himself. And so we're going to be asking ourselves this question as we go through the text. What's at the core? What's the bottom line? What's essential? What's what's non-negotiable? And, and you can see that John in his letter, he's not wasting any time. He's jumping right into the deep end. And so if you're here, you're, you're considering Christianity, you're asking yourself these questions. I, I hope that you heard that, that Jesus Christ is helping you understand the first step is that And if you don't believe that, you need to work that all the way down before you go anywhere else. But there is someone who is good. And he has taken your sins, lock, stock, and barrel. He does not require any performance on your part. He just requires you to faithfully follow him. That's the gospel. That's the core. That's what you've got to have. If you're here and you're growing in your relationship with Christ, you need to ask yourself, am I slipping off the foundation anywhere? Is there any place that the culture is creeping in on my thinking? Have I made a periphery issue the critical issue? That something in the periphery now has to happen And John is saying, here's the core. This is the one thing you have to have. Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Lord, this is exciting as this letter is. It's not gray. It's black and white. There's a very clear line that gets drawn by the Apostle John, who is just repeating a line that you have drawn for him. And so now we stand here 2,000 years later drawing that same line in a very similar culture, in a place hostile to Christianity, hostile to just Jesus being the only way or investing in a person instead of investing in a philosophy or a system or a path. So, So we stand grateful for this letter that it would hem us in, that it would break off poor thinking and, and knit together good thinking 
good biblical thinking. Jesus, you are life. And if we don't have you, we're just dying. And I pray for anyone here today who might just be dying. That this would be the day they would turn and trust in your goodness alone. For any of us who have made a periphery issue the core issue, help us to just hold on to you at the very center. Lord, this message must go out across this city and across the nation and across the world, and and we can just be but a small part. And you don't need us in order for your plan to move forward, but you want us to participate in it. And so as we give of our money and we give of our time, our talents, I pray that you would multiply them in ways that would, would never reflect back on the preacher, would never reflect back on this church or this building or any group of people. It reflects back on the core, the life who is Jesus Christ.